We're looking this morning at the hurt of sexual immorality. And our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 and following. The first thing you will notice in your bulletin outline is that God created the different sexes. You all know the creation account of human beings in which God in Trinity determined among themselves, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to create the earth and then to populate it with all kinds of species, reptiles, fowl, mammals, and yes, man. With the creation of each category, we read a statement very similar to this. And I'm not going to read all the statements, but they, they all kind of have this same pattern. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. And this time he's talking about the fish. So it says, and fill the waters in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. So he says that about the fish. He says it about the fowls. And when the mammals are created, he says the same thing. Genesis 1 verse 22. Be fruitful and increase in number is referencing the natural biological process of procreation. Now think about this. The very first, the very first male and female pair of any and all creatures came into existence by divine fiat. That is to say, God commanded such to appear and they appeared. They, they were produced that way. They were made that way. Now he could have done this, couldn't he? with every subsequent creature until the whole earth was filled with creatures directly created by God. Spoke it, there they are. He could have done that with every other subsequent creature, but he didn't do that. Instead, he called upon the first pair of each species, whether fish, fowl, or mammal, to be fruitful and increase in number. That is, cohabit, make babies of your kind, and it was so. It was so. The same happened with Adam and Eve. We read, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28. So, Man coming off the hands of God as a creator is created in two sexes, male and female. And they're given, given excuse me, the same mandate that we see with regard to the other parts of creation. Be fruitful, increase in number. So mankind, like the other animal species, was created by God, male and female. Adam first, then Eve as his helper. You know the account. Together. A pair of human beings just like a pair of mammals with this exception. Adam and Eve were created in the likeness of God. And they were given ruling capacity over other parts, all the other parts 
of creation. Being created in the image of God means they had intellect, they, had, they were rational, they could make decisions of the will, they were emotional creatures. God is all three of those things. We call it personality. And that's how they were created. And it distinguishes them from mammals. Yeah, we're warm-blooded and all of that business. We breathe oxygen and all those things, just like animals do. But here's the distinction. We're created in the image of God. We reflect the divine character of God himself. God's the ruler of the universe. He put man as ruler over the earth. And this first couple was given the same reproductive mandate. Be fruitful and increase in number. And so what do we read? In chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 1 and following, we read, Adam lay with his wife Eve, now not a cave woman, not just any woman, but his wife. You say, well, she was the only one around. That's true, but the scripture designates her as his wife. That's important. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain, and later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Allah, the first family, right? On the face of God's earth. So the first thing we note in this whole subject is that God created the sexes. Could have done things differently had he chosen to do so, but he didn't. Number two, sin distorted human sexuality and corrupted the sanctity of marriage. Paul talks about this in Romans 1, verse 18 and following. And by the way, Romans 1 is a reference to the Genesis account of the fall that we find in Genesis chapter 3. But here's the theology of it, so to speak. Genesis 3, the historicity of it, how it happened in history. Romans 1, the theology, what it meant when Adam and Eve listened to the serpent and disobeyed God. We read in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. We're not in the dark as to what's right and wrong. That's what he is saying. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. How? Being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. They're not in the dark. God has created his creation and his creations don't spell out evolution. His creation spells out an important, intelligent creator who is moral and upright. For, he goes on, although they knew God, that's Adam and Eve, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, there, there it is, that's the lie of Genesis 3 when the serpent said to Eve, you know, if you eat of this forbidden fruit, it'll make you wise like God. So Paul says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made 
to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. What's that? He's saying they went to idolatry. They had God. They had the Creator as their God. And what did they choose to worship? The things of creation. The animals, the birds, the fowl, even themselves. I'll be wise like God. And that appealed to Adam and Eve. Therefore, I'm reading on, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. And we can ask the question, what sinful desires? Paul goes on. To sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Romans 1, verse 18 through 24. So, here's where it all started. Adam and Eve, first couple, so forth. They sinned against God. They went into idolatry. They worshipped themselves, their own intellect. And then they were given to their own lusts. The context reveals the details. Men with men, homosexuality. Women with women, lesbian culture of our day. Verse 26 of Romans 1 says, Shameful lusts, all products of a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Romans 1 verse 28. That's where it all started. Way back there with Adam and Eve. Not only so then, but marriage itself came under attack through such things as infidelity, incest, polygamy. Polygamy uh, was originally permitted, but condemned eventually because of the severe abuse that occurred and the violation of the two becoming one principle, which is the bedrock of marriage. And when the Pharisees said, well then, they said to Jesus, why did Moses permit it? He said, because of your stubborn and willful hearts. That's why. Because you wouldn't listen to God. What God permits sometimes doesn't necessarily mean that he, he's in favor of those things. Not only so, but the law given by God included regulations on human sexuality. And while we are not... Uh, like to think, we do not like to think of the ugly side of sex. God does not want us to be naive and gullible. If you read Leviticus 18, I'm going to leave that to, your, to yourselves. It lays down the descriptions and the prohibitions. Okay. And then concludes with this thought. Do not defile yourself in any of these ways because... This is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Leviticus 18, verse 24 and 25. He's saying to Israel, you know, there's going to be one reason why you're going to be great and victorious over the Canaanites when you go across that Jordan River and you go into the Promised Land, you got all these people there. Here's the, here's the reason. They are immoral, godless people. Perverting sexuality, destroying marriage, and all of those cultic things that they're involved in. And I'm going to allow you to be the ones that whip them and, and extinguish them from the land. But he goes on to say in Leviticus 18, verse 28... And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that be were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such people must be cut off from their people. 
keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came and do not defile yourself with them. I am the Lord your God. So that's Leviticus 18 verse 28 and following. So don't just get thinking here, oh, we're the people of God and we can do anything that we want and God will love us and Nothing bad will happen to us. He's, he's saying, I'm warning you right now. The reason you're going to be victorious is because I'm against what's going on in that land. Now, if you become what was in that land, then I'm going to be against you as well. Let me say it this way. God does not have two standards of morality. One for the world and one for his people. No, his standard is one because... His holiness of character is one, and it does not change. What does God say about marriage? He says this, Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Hebrews 13, verse 4. That's God's standard right there. Hollywood has promoted and glamorized illicit sexuality. Every imaginable and some unimaginable sexual corruption is portrayed on the movie screen in glorious color. TV shows like Californication. Now there's a name for a show. Californication. Sex and the City. Desperate Housewives and dozens more all promote adultery, fornication, homosexuality as simply being an alternative or acceptable sexual replacement to the one man, one woman sexuality of traditional marriage. Just last month, June 2nd and 3rd, Detroit sponsored Motor City Pride Parade for gays and lesbians. Disney World in Florida, which ought to be a nice place to take your family and your kids, does a similar parade every year. Home Depot refuses to rescind its sponsorship of gay marriage and the gay agenda. Ontario, Canada held a parade for transvestites and people having cross-gender surgeries. You see where we're going as a society? We're going, as uh, Judge Bork wrote the title of his book, we're slouching towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, he wrote that book probably 10, 15 years ago. I'd say we are there. We are there. These things are to be found in every major city of America, and the agenda continues to be advanced into more and more central perversions such as child pornography and so on. Coach Sanders of Penn State has been indicted on 40 counts of child molestation, which was covered up by the uni university officials. Where's the pride in this? I see the arrogance. I see the corruption in it. God calls it shameful. And he brings appropriate judgment, but people make parades and call it pride. To Judah, God said, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. 
I'm about to hand you over to those you hate, to those you turned away from in disgust. They will deal with you in hatred and take away everything you have worked for. They will leave you naked and bare, and the shame of your prostitution will be exposed. Your lewdness and promiscuity have brought this on you. Wow. Because you lusted after the nations and defied your, defiled yourself with their idols. Ezekiel 23, verse 28 through 30. And then in verse 35, he continues. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Since you have forgotten me and thrust me behind your back, you must bear the consequences of your lewdness and prostitution. So, did they get away with it? No. Did God, was God asleep on the, on the switch here? No. He saw it all. He recorded it all. He brought a nation against them. Paul writes, For I have often told you before, and now say again, with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Philippians 3, verse 18 and 19. He's saying the things they take pride in are their shameful acts. Their glory is their shame. That's what they glory in. You ought to walk around with heads down, eyes closed, not even be able to stare people in the face because of their lifestyles. But they march down the street with banners and parades. Jude, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, wrote about the promoters of such evil things, saying this, These men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do not understand by instinct like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. See, they're, they're thinking, oh, they, you know, look at us. He goes on, woe to them. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted. Twice dead. What dead in nature due to their sin and dead for eternity due to their rebellion and apostasy from the truth. He goes on. They are wild ways of the sea foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Jude verse 10 and 5. They just foam up their shame. They just display it in front of everybody. They're proud of it. Sin distorts human sexuality and it corrupts the sanctity of marriage. People don't even think about marriage much anymore. They just go live together. And then when they get around to talking about, well, you know, maybe we want to have a family. Then, then maybe they'll, they'll think about making it official, getting married so that the baby will have a name. Thirdly, 
these sex sins are in the church. I wish I could tell you that the kind of sexual sins that God condemns is only found in the pagan world, but that's not so. The Bible honestly portrays the sexual sins of those who are called by God's name. And that's one of the proofs that we have that the Bible is the word of God. Men like to write their biographies with glowing terms to make themselves look good. But God comes to these men that are penning the scriptures and they say, Now you're going to write what's the truth. I'm going to have you portray you as you truly are. And that's one of the great evidences we have of the authority of the scripture. For example, now this first example, he, he was called by God as one of God's people, but he didn't live that way. I'm referring to Esau's lust for Hittite women, and it earned him this biography of his life, written by the writer of Hebrews. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. We just stop there. I, would you want that written on your tombstone? Immoral and godless. I don't want that on my tombstone. That's what's written on Esau's. Who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Hebrews 12 verse 16. Now the inheritance rights assigned spiritual leadership to the head of the clan. That would have been Esau. But Esau was not interested in things spiritual. He was not interested in righteous living. He was into lustful living. And he was Isaac and Rebekah's oldest son. Judah, son of Jacob, beloved Jacob, second son of Isaac and Rebekah, married a Canaanite woman. Whoa, shouldn't have done that. He violated the scripture right there. The sin of intermarriage is forbidden. We're to marry in the faith. He didn't do it. His wife had three sons, Er, E-R, Onan, and Shelah. Er, Onan, Shelah. Er married a woman named Tamar, but he was such a wicked man, this Er, it says the Lord put him to death. Didn't tell us how, doesn't tell us how, but he, well, he put him to death. That left Tamar a widow. Now by Levitical law, Onan, second son, was to marry Tamar and have children by her who would be counted as heirs' children. This is strange law to us, but it was so that the name of heir would not die out in the community of the redeemed. So he does marry her. He married Tamar, but he refused to impregnate her, and so God put him to death also. Wow. Judah's sons aren't doing too good here. Er killed because he's wicked. Onan killed because he's wicked. So that left Shelah, the third son. But Shelah was too young to marry. And so Judah promised Tamar that when Shelah became of age, she would be given to him as his bride. Judah did not keep his promise. So Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute along the pathway where Judah would be traveling. Judah's wife had died, so he was now a widower. 
So he approached Tamar, unbeknownst to him, that she was his daughter-in-law. They wore veils and all of that kind of thing. And he struck a deal for sex with her, and she became pregnant by Judah, her father-in-law. When the town folk planned to stone Tamar for her immorality, she had personal articles belonging to Judah, proving that he was the father. Now listen to his statement. She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. You'll find all this in Genesis 38. Now here's my question when I read an account like this. What is the son of Judah, the clan head, through whom the kingly line is to be established, what is he doing cohabiting with a woman that he views as a prostitute? He's in the family of God. I understand the whole problem. He lost his wife and all of those kind of things. But here's where he chooses to express his sexuality with a woman he thinks in his mind is a prostitute. Samson, like Judah, married a Philistine woman. Not allowed, but he did it anyway. And when that did not work out, he ended up living with a woman named Delilah, who weaseled the secret of his strength from him and then turned him over to his enemies, the Philistines, who put out his eyes and reduced him to an animal grinding wheat in the granary. Here's another man. He just had trouble controlling his lust. David lusted after Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her while her husband was away at war. And later, when she became pregnant with his child, he had Uriah, her husband, killed by placing him in the most dangerous spot on the front line. And he knew he would get killed. That's why he did it. Amnon, one of David's sons, lusted after Tamar, sister to Absalom. Different Tamar, by the way. He feigned illness so that David would permit her to become his nurse. When they were alone, he raped her and then threw her out of his house like so much garbage. And David did nothing about it. And that was the seed, if I could think of anything. That was the seed of Absalom's rebellion towards David because of what Amnon did to his sister and David didn't do anything about it. And so Absalom avenged his sister two years later and then he revolted against David and tried to take David's throne. You think Saxons don't have these kind of repercussions? They have deep tentacles and roots down into the very fiber of our lives. Coming to the New Testament, anything different in the New Covenant? We would hope so, wouldn't we? A man in the Corinthian church was involved with incest with his father's wife, which would be his stepmother. And the church, again, did nothing about it until Paul rebuked them in shame. 1 Corinthians 5, you can read the account there. The Corinthian church had a history of sexual immorality. That's our text. Look at verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, none of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. So, here's the problem of sexual sin in the church, in the church of Corinth, and they had to deal with it. To the churches of Galatia, that's the first missionary journey that Paul went on. Little church of Derby, Lystra, Iconium, those three little churches. Paul wrote, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And I tell you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 16 through 21. The fact that he had to write about these things tells you that these things were part of the problem of the Greek culture of the day. Ephesus, beloved Ephesus, wonderful church. Among you there must not be even a hint, writes Paul, of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse jesting, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. Now we've just read, that's Ephesians 5 by the way, we've just read of three church groups in the Greek world of Paul's day and what does he have to say to all three of these church groups? He's saying, you know, you gotta watch the immorality that's part of your culture and some of it's come into the church. In Revelation, we read of the church of Thyatira and Christ is speaking to this church and he says, I know your deeds, I know your love, I know your faith, I know your service and your perseverance, I know that you are now doing more than you did at first. In other words, they're being faithful and so forth. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Here it is. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. And so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Revelation 2, verse 19 through 20. Now obviously, this is... Um, a figurative use of the woman Jezebel. Jezebel was a real historical character that lived in the time of the kings. She was wife, became wife to wicked King Ahab. 
that we have in the scriptures. Now he's using her figuratively because what was her sin back historically? She introduced sex cults, sex worship into Israel. The worship of the Baals, the male organ, the worship of the Asherah pole, the female nude body. She introduced that into Israel and they had all of these cult practices of prostitution. So now Paul, uh, the writer of, of scripture, John brings this over as a figurative thing and he says, you know, that's going on in the church. There's the Jezebel doctrine is still going forth and it's in the church and you better repent. If you don't repent, and the text goes on to say, I'm going to come and remove your candlestick. I'll take your light right out of the world. Now you can see from all this that sex sins are alive and well in the New Testament church. And it demonstrates that we cannot claim to be free of such things just because we profess to know Jesus is Savior. These people are all professing these good things. Oh yeah, I know Lord. I love Lord. I love God. Yeah. And they're living like this. They're living like the people of the world. They have no, no distinction in, in these areas. So... It's not just a world problem. It's not just an unbeliever problem. It's like all kinds of sins. The world does the sins and we do them too. There's liars and crooks and gossips and backbiters in the church just like we find in the world. And there's immoral people in the church uh, culture just like we find in the world. Now that brings us then to the hurt of sexual sins. What's so hurting about this? Well, number one, fornication, rape, child abuse reaches deep into the soul of the abused person and changes their lives. It does. After Amnon raped his sister, we read Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamental robe that she was wearing. That indicated that she was a princess, you see. Was something that David had given her. She put her hand on her head and went away weeping as she went. Now he kicked her out of, it, out of his house. So you can just see the scene here. Her brother Absalom said to her, listen to this, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? See, Absalom's pretty sharp. He's figured it out. Why is my sister leaving Amnon's house, walking back home with her head on her, her hand on her head, wailing and weeping, unless something real bad went, home, went on behind those closed doors? And he said to her, Be quiet now, my sister. And we read in Tamar. Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. 2 Samuel 13, verse 19 and 20. Her life was ruined as a result of Amnon's sexual predator. I think we would be very foolish indeed to say of this, well, you know, that was then, but this is now thus implying that sexual abuse in our day is more easily accepted, more easy to bear than it was in Bible days. That is utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. 
the victims of sexual abuse carry guilt that is not theirs and scars that break open in weeping wounds now and again because they feel violated and they feel ashamed even though something was done to them. It's the dirty secret they want no one to know about and for which they will go to great lengths to hide. For all our alleged sexual freedom in candor when discussing these things, the victims carry deep wounds that only God can heal. But you know, sometimes they don't even think that God can do much about these hurts. And so in sorrow they mourn in secret and in despair. Like Tamar, they live their lives as a desolate person. And the children, the children of child abuse are even more vulnerable because they have no defense. They have no knowledge of what has been done to them. They have no place in the adult world to which they can turn and no way to express themselves in a way that will be believable over the protests of the adult perpetrator. We accuse the kids of lying. We exonerate the adult saying, Oh, he or she, they would never do anything like that. But they did. And they do. And that's part of the problem of the Penn State scandal. They covered that up and covered that up. They said, oh, Coach Sanders, he wouldn't do anything like that. But he did. And the authorities knew where they're going. This is going to ruin Penn State. It is. It's a public university. It's funded by public funds. Contributions, you can just see, going to go down. Athletic program, going to go down. Secondly, adultery destroys marriages. The world calls it affairs. So-and-so's having an affair with so-and-so. The woman in Proverbs 7 that we read about waits till her husband leaves town on a business trip. Then out came a woman, writes Solomon, to meet him, this young man that's walking down her street. Dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She's loud and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the square, every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him and with a brazen face said, I came out to meet you. I looked for you. I found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not home. He's gone on a long journey. Proverbs 7, 10 through 19. And Solomon issues this warning. He's talking to his adult son, so all this is very proper. He issues this warning. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her path. In other words, don't seek this woman out intentionally and don't allow your feet to just kind of stray over to her side of town. And he goes on. Many are the victims that she has brought down. 
Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. Proverbs 7, 24 through 27. What's he saying? He's saying, son, it ain't all pleasure and games. You are playing with fire. There's death at the end of the adulterer's path. Whether it's a male that's doing the adultery or a female that's doing the adultery, that's where it is leading. Thank God, through forgiveness and reconciliation, Christian couples have been able to work through such sexual sins and save their marriages. And I credit the grace of God when that happens. We ought not to make sexual sins the unpardonable sins. If you're getting that message from me this morning, you're getting the wrong message. I'm just mentioning this because of the particular hurt that comes our way when these things are done. David was forgiven and had a rewarding marriage with Bathsheba. No one can discount that. Read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. And there in verse 5 you'll read of someone called Rahab. R-A-H-A-B. Rahab. Who everywhere else in scripture is labeled with this epithet prostitute. But not here. Not in Matthew 1. And I say, well, why not here? Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Hebrews 11, verse 31. James writes, chapter 2, verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous, for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. You know the story. When the Israelites came into the promised land, full of Canaanites, wicked people that we just read about some time ago. Rahab talked to the spies and she says, I know about your God. I've been tracking how he's been taking care of you in the desert. And she hid those spies in her house. What I'm saying here and what the scripture is saying is that God can make virgins out of immoral women. He can make pure men out of sexual predators. We don't have to live like we lived in our high school days and in our college days. God can change all of that and must change it all if we're to inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 9 and following of our text references sexual immorality. Adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders amidst other sins. And it says such will not inherit the kingdom of God in an unrepentant state. But then this text concludes with this. And that is what some of you Corinthians were. But, oh thank God for the buts that we find in scripture. But what? You were washed. You were sanctified, made holy. You were justified, saved, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Can I say it as firmly and as strongly as I can? No sin, no matter how vile, no matter how degrading, no matter how shameful, no sin is beyond the forgiveness of God and the cleansing of Jesus' blood. You better know that and get that in your heart. We departmentalize sin. 
I say, well, I, I'm not sexually immoral. Yeah, but are you a liar? Are you a thief? Are you a gossip? Are you a backbiter? Are you a slanderer? But by the way, they're listed here in this text too. Many of those sins. Read Romans 1, you'll see a longer list other than the homosexual sins that are listed there. You'll see a whole lot of things, including kids, disobedience to parents. It's in Romans 1. People go to hell for being disobedient to parents. So, well, boy, that sounds like a pretty tough standard. Yeah, <laughs> it's as tough as the holiness of God. And we don't match the holiness of God. We need a Savior. And praise God we have one in the Lord Jesus Christ. The third herd of sexual sin, and this is a biggie, is that the judgment of God rests on all who sin like this, who refuse to repent. I could say it this way. You think you're hurting now? Whoa. There's a bigger hurt coming. We have just seen that God will forgive the Rahabs of the world or the Judas of the world or the Davids of the world, but it is conditioned upon repentance. We read of Judah that he acknowledged his sin, saying that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, was more righteous than he was. And then, and then as evidence that his repentance was real, we are told that he did not sleep with her again. He saw it for what it was. Same with David in his old age. We read when King David was old and well advanced in years, he could not keep warm, even when they put covers and covers on him. So his servant said to him, listen to this brainy idea that they came up with. His servant said to him, um, let's look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord the king may keep warm. So they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and they found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. Now the girl was very beautiful. That's very important. If we're going to excite somebody's lusts. They weren't looking for an ugly woman. They were looking for a beautiful knockout type of woman. They brought the girl. She was very beautiful. And she took care of the king and waited on him. But, here's that another one of those buds. But the king had no intimate relationship with her. 1 Kings 1, verse 1 through 4. The servants wanted to use the heat of passion to warm the king. But David had gone that way once before, hadn't he, in his past? When he was looking out from his balcony and saw naked Bathsheba taking her bath, and his lust incited him to snatch her up for himself. And he was not about to repeat that sin again. That's the sign of true repentance. So you don't have to be a slave to sexual sin. God can give emancipation. Well, what of those who continue in their fornication, their adultery, their incest, their homosexuality? He says, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those 
who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers or adulterers or perverts and slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he has entrusted to me. 1 Timothy 1 verse 9 through 11. He's saying there has to be repentance. Again, speaking of those excluded from heaven, John writes in the Revelation, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And that is the second death. You think dying in this life and, and giving up the ghost, so to speak, dying, your body dies. You think that's terrible? John says, I want you to know there's a second death that nobody wants to go through. Revelation 21 verse 8. No one's getting into heaven. And what's the problem here? It's not just the sins. No. But it's Revelation 9 verse 23. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Revelation 9 verse 23. You see, that, that's the problem. It's not just the sin, those sins, but they wouldn't repent of them. They wouldn't turn away from them. They wouldn't come to Christ. Let me say it this way. Jesus didn't die so that you can take your sins with you to glory. He died to free you from the hold of such sins. Without repentance, the sins still hold you fast. And the consequence of judgment remains. And brethren, that is a hurt with no end. With no end. Now you may be sitting here skeptical and you might say, Pastor, does God really, can he really forgive sexual sins? Can he really deal with that? I mean, we see it everywhere in our society and we say, where's God, you know? That's people are living out their lusts. Well, let me just close by reading a list from the scripture where God did marvelous things. Judah, in the godly line, the kingly line, involved in the incest, fornication, prostitution with his daughter-in-law. And God turned his heart around. Samson is found by name in the by faith chapter in the book of Hebrews as one who is going to be with God. Rahab is the great grandma of David himself, king of Israel. Matthew chapter 1. David and Bathsheba both committed adultery. And yet they produced Solomon, one of the best kings that ever could come along. It says in scripture, God loved him. God loved Solomon. Coming into the New Testament, the woman at the well, John 4, confessed to Jesus, her teacher, whom she didn't know he was Jesus, sitting at the well, that she had had five husbands, and the man she was living with now was not husband number six, but not her husband. And God brought salvation to that Samaritan woman and to the whole village that she was a part of. The woman caught in the very act of adultery, John chapter 8. Jesus turns to her and says, Go and sin no more. She was forgiven. The stepson involved in incest in 1 Corinthians 5. 
Yeah. And Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, you know, yes, you got to stop gloating about the fact that you're so magnanimous, you're so tolerant that you allow this guy to be in your church. You allow this sin to go on. He says, I've already put him out. You need to put him out. So they excommunicated him from the church. 1 Corinthians 5. What do we find in 2 Corinthians, the second letter that Paul writes to the Corinthian church? He writes about how the man should be restored because he's truly repented and God has cleansed his life. And now you need to bring him back into the church. And then in our own text, many of the Corinthians, some of whom were homosexuals or male prostitutes or adulterers, it's a horrible list, but there they are along with other things. And Paul says, you know, that's what some of you guys were. That's what some of you women were. But not anymore. God has come into your life and he's washed you clean. He's justified. He saved you. And I can say this morning that God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness are just a prayer away when there's true repentance. May God grant that to us this day. May God make us a pure church. Our Father, tough to preach on these things, but necessary. There is so much hurt even in the church, to people that have been abused or hurt sexually or their marriage has gone on the rocks because of infidelity. People feel so betrayed when the one they're married to goes skipping out of town with some tootsie they found at work, some man they found at the coffee shop. And the world say, oh, okay, sarah, sarah, you know, that's life. It's not life. It's, it's the pathway to death and destruction and people feel hurt and they're scarred for life. But Lord, you can turn that around. You can bring forgiveness and cleansing even to the victims that didn't do anything. But they feel bad and they feel guilty and they wonder what, 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 what could they have done differently to keep their husband in love with them. And it's just the sinfulness of our hearts that cause the marriage to fall apart. Lord, keep our marriages pure and keep our eyes focused upon Jesus Christ. And if anyone here has suffered from that kind of thing in the past, may they understand the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God that he can bring renewal to bad situations and he does it every day. That's what salvation is about. So for any here that have been the victims of sexual sin to any Lord here that have been perpetrators of sexual sin bring to their mind and hearts the forgiveness of God. May they revel in your grace and your mercy. The fact that you delight to save sinners and change our lives. And Lord, if we're still involved in any of these things, forgive us. Especially watch our, us men with our lustful eyes committing adultery in the heart. Lord, turn our eyes to Christ into righteousness. For your name's sake, we pray these things. Amen.